Book Ten, Part Two, of History of the Kings of Britain, by Geoffrey of Monmouth, translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Lucius Tiberius goes to Langriae. Arthur, designing to vanquish him, by a stratagem possesses himself of the valley of Suesia. These repeated disasters wrought no small disturbance in the mind of Lucius Tiberius, and made him hesitate whether to bring it to a general battle with Arthur, or to retire into Augusta Dunum, and stay till the Emperor Leo, with his forces, could come to his assistance. At length, giving way to his fears, he entered Langriae with his army, intending to reach the other city the night following. Arthur, finding this, and being desirous to get before him in his march, left the city on the left hand, and the same night entered a certain valley called Suesia, through which Lucius was to pass. Then he divided his men into several bodies, commanding one legion, over which Morvid, consul of Gloucester, was appointed general, to wait close by, that he might retreat to them if there should be occasion, and from thence rally his broken forces for a second battle. The rest he divided into seven parts, in each of which he placed five thousand five hundred and fifty-five men, all completely armed. He also appointed different stations to his horse and foot, and gave command that just as the foot should advance to the attack, the horse, keeping close together in their ranks, should at the same moment march up obliquely and endeavour to put the enemy into disorder. The companies of foot were, after the British manner, drawn out into a square, with a right and left wing, under the command of Augustle, King of Albania, and Cador, Duke of Cornwall, the one presiding over the right wing, the other over the left. Over another party were placed the two famous consuls, Quirinius Carnatensis and Bozo of Richardon, called, in the Saxon tongue, Oxenford. Over a third were Achilius, king of the Dacians, and Lot, king of the Norwegians. The fourth being commanded by Hurl, duke of the Armoricans, and Wolgan, the king's nephew. After these were four other parties placed in the rear, the first commanded by Caius the sewer, and Bedver the butler, the second by Holden, duke of the Rutini, and Guitard of the Pictavians, the third by Viganis of Legacester, Jonathal of Dorchester, and Cursalum of Caicester, the fourth by Obgenius of Bath. Behind all these, Arthur, for himself, and the legion that was to attend near him, made choice of a place where he set up a golden dragon for a standard, whither the wounded 
or fatigued, might, in case of necessity, retreat as into their camp. The legion that was with him consisted of six thousand six hundred and sixty-six men. Chapter 7 Arthur's Exhortation to His Soldiers After he had thus placed them in all their stations, he made the following speech to his soldiers. My brave countrymen, who have made Britain the mistress of thirty kingdoms, I congratulate you upon your late noble exploit, which to me is a proof that your valour is so far from being impaired that it is rather increased. Though you have been five years without exercise, wherein the softening pleasures of an easy life had a greater share of your time than the use of arms, yet all this has not made you degenerate from your natural bravery, which you have shown in forcing the Romans to flee. The pride of their leaders has animated them to attempt the invasion of your liberties. They have tried you in battle, with numbers superior to yours, and have not been able to stand before you, but have basely withdrawn themselves into that city, from which they are now ready to march out, and to pass through this valley in their way to Augusta Dunum, so that you may have an opportunity of falling upon them unawares like a flock of sheep. Certainly they expected to find in you the cowardice of the eastern nations, when they thought to make your country tributary, and you their slaves. What? Have they never heard of your wars with the Dacians, Norwegians, and princes of the Gauls, whom you reduced under my power, and freed from their shameful yoke? We, then, that have had success in a greater war, need not doubt of it in a less, if we do but endeavour, with the same spirit, to vanquish these poltroons. You shall want no rewards of honour, if as faithful soldiers you do, but strictly obey my commands. For as soon as we have routed them, we will march straight to Rome, and take it. And then all the gold, silver, palaces, towers, towns, cities, and other riches of the vanquished, shall be yours. He had hardly done speaking, before they all, with one voice, declared that they were ready to suffer death, rather than quit the field while he had life. Chapter 8 Lucius Tiberius, discovering Arthur's design, in a speech animates his followers to fight. But Lucius Tiberius, discovering the designs that were formed against him, would not flee, as he had first intended, but taking new courage, resolved to march to the same valley against them, and calling together his principal commanders, spoke to them in these words. Venerable fathers, to whose empire both the eastern and western kingdoms owe obedience, 
remember the virtues of your ancestors, who were not afraid to shed their blood when the vanquishing of the enemies of the Commonwealth required it, but to leave an example of their courage and military virtues to their posterity, behave themselves in all battles with that contempt of death as if God had given them some security against it. By this conduct they often triumphed, and by triumphing escaped death. Such was the reward of their virtue from divine providence, which overrules all events. The increase of the commonwealth, and of their own valour, was owing to this. And all these virtues that generally adorn the great, as integrity, honour, and munificence, flourishing a long time in them, raised them, and their posterity, to the empire of the whole world. Let their noble examples animate you, rouse up the spirit of the ancient Romans, and be not afraid to march out against our enemies that are lying in ambush for us in the valley, but boldly, with your swords, demand of them your just rights. Do not think that I retired into this city for fear of engaging with them, but I thought that, as their pursuit of us was rash and foolish, so we might hence, on a sudden, intercept them in it, and by dividing their main body make a great slaughter of them. But now, since they have altered the measures which we supposed they had taken, let us also alter ours. Let us go in quest of them, and bravely fall upon them, or if they shall happen to have the advantage in the beginning of the battle, let us only stand our ground during the fury of their first assault, and the victory will undoubtedly be ours, for in many battles this manner of conduct has been attended with victory. As soon as he had made an end of speaking these and other things, they all declared their assent, promised with an oath to stand by him, and hastened to arm themselves. Which when they had done, they marched out of Lengriai to the valley where Arthur had drawn out his forces in order of battle. Then they also began to marshal their army, which they divided into twelve companies, and according to the Roman manner of battle, drew out each army into the form of a wedge, consisting of six thousand, six hundred and sixty-six men. Each company also had its respective leaders, who were to give direction when to advance, or when to be upon the defensive. One of them was headed by Lucius Catullus the senator, and Aliphantinum, king of Spain, another by Hurtatius, king of the Parthians, and Marius Lepidus, a senator, 
a third by Bocchus, king of the Medes, and Caius Metellus, a senator, a fourth by Sertorius, king of Libya, and Quintus Milvius, a senator. These four companies were placed in the front of the army. In the rear of these there were four others, whereof one was commanded by Circes, king of the Iturians, another by Pandrasus, king of Egypt, a third by Polytetes, king of Bithynia, a fourth by Teusa, duke of Phrygia, and again, behind all these four others, whereof the commanders were Quintus Carusius, a senator, Lilius Hostiensis, Sulpitius Subuculus, and Mauritius Silvanus. As for the general himself, he was sometimes in one place, sometimes another, to encourage and direct as there should be occasion. For a standard, he ordered a golden eagle to be firmly set up in the centre for his men to repair to whenever they should happen to be separated from their company. Chapter 9 A Battle Between Arthur and Lucius Tiberius And now the Britons and Romans stood presenting their arms at each other, when forthwith, at the sound of the trumpets, the company that was headed by the king of Spain and Lucius Catellus boldly rushed forward against that which the king of Scotland and Duke of Cornwall led, but were not able to make the least breach in their firm ranks. So that while these stood their ground, up came Guarinius and Bozo, with a body of horse upon their full speed, broke through the party that began the assault, and met with another, which the king of the Parthians was leading up against Achilles, king of Dacia. After this first onset, there followed a general engagement of both armies with great violence, and several breaches were made on each side. The shouts, the slaughter, the quantity of blood spilt, and the agonies of the dying made a dreadful scene of horror. At first, the Britons sustained a great loss, by having Bedford the butler killed, and Caius the sewer mortally wounded. For as Bedford met Bocchus, king of the Medes, he fell dead by a stab of his lance amidst the enemy's troops. And Caius, in endeavouring to revenge his death, was surrounded by the Median troops, and there received a mortal wound. Yet as a brave soldier, he opened himself away with the wing which he led, killed and dispersed the Medes, and would have made a safe retreat with all his men, had he not met the king of Libya with the forces under him, who put his whole company into disorder. Yet not so great, but that he was still able to get off with a few, and flee with Bedver's corpse to the golden dragon. The Neustrians grievously lamented at the sight of their leader's mangled body, and so did the Andergavians, when they beheld their consul wounded. But there was now no room for complaints, for the furious and bloody shocks of both armies made it necessary to provide for their own defence. Therefore, Hirolgaz, the nephew of Bedver, being extremely enraged at his death, called up to him three hundred men, 
and like a wild boar amongst a pack of dogs, broke through the enemy's ranks with his horse, making towards the place where he had seen the standard of the king of the Medes, little regarding what might befall him if he could but revenge the loss of his uncle. At length he reached the place, killed the king, brought off his body to his companions, and laid it by that of his uncle, where he mangled it in the same manner. Then calling with a loud voice to his countrymen, he animated their troops, and vehemently pressed them to exert themselves to the utmost, now that their spirits were raised, and the enemy disheartened, and especially as they had the advantage of them in being placed in better order, and so might the more grievously annoy them. Encouraged with this exhortation, they began a general assault upon the enemy, which was attended with a terrible slaughter on both sides. From the part of the Romans, besides many others, fell Aliphantinum, king of Spain, Micipsa of Babylon, as also Quintus Milvius and Marius Lepidus, senators. On the part of the Britons, Holden, king of the Rutini, Leodegarius of Bologna, and three consuls of Britain, Curselum of Chichester, Gallic of Salisbury, and Urbgenius of Bath. So that the troops which they commanded, being extremely weakened, returned till they came to the army of the Armorican Britons, commanded by Hurl and Walgan. But these, being inflamed at the retreat of their friends, encouraged them to stand their ground, and caused them, with the help of their own forces, to put the pursuers to flight. While they continued this pursuit, they beat down and killed several of them, and gave them no respite till they came to the general's troop, who, seeing the distress of his companions, hastened to their assistance. Chapter 10 Hull and Wolgan signalised their valour in the fight. And now in this latter encounter, the Britons were worsted with the loss of Kimarkok, consul of Trigeria, and two thousand with him, besides three famous noblemen, Richomarchus, Blockovius, and Jugivius of Bodlone, who, had they but enjoyed the dignity of princes, would have been celebrated for their valour through all succeeding ages. For during this assault which they made in conjunction with Hurl and Wolgan, there was not an enemy within their reach that could escape the fury of their sword or lance. But upon their falling in among Lucius's party, they were surrounded by them, and suffered the same fate with the consul and other men. The loss of these men made those matchless heroes, Hurl and Wolgan, much more eager to assault the general's ranks, and to try on all sides where to make the greatest impression. But Wolgan, whose valour was never to be foiled, endeavoured to gain access to Lucius himself, that he might encounter him, and with this view beat down and killed all that stood in his way. And Hurl, not inferior to him, did no less service in another part, by spiriting up his men, and giving and receiving blows among the enemy, with the same undaunted courage. It was hard to determine which of them 
was the stoutest soldier. Chapter 11 Lucius Tiberius being killed, the Britons obtained the victory. But Walgan, by forcing his way through the enemy's troops as we have said before, found at last what he had wished for, access to the general, and immediately encountered him. Lucius, being then in the flower of his youth, and a person of great courage and vigour, desired nothing more than to engage with such a one as might put his strength into its full trial. Putting himself, therefore, into a posture of defence, he received Walgan with joy, and was not a little proud to try his courage with one of whom he had heard such great things. The fight continued between them a long time, with great force of blows, and no less dexterity in warding them off, each being resolved upon the other's destruction. During this sharp conflict between them, the Romans, on a sudden, recovering their courage, made an assault upon the Armoricans, and having relieved their general, repulsed Hurl and Walgan with their troops, till they found themselves unawares met by Arthur and the forces under him. For he, hearing of the slaughter that was little before made of his men, had speedily advanced with his legion and drawing out his caliburn, spoke to them with a loud voice after this manner. "'What are you doing, soldiers? Will you suffer these effeminate wretches to escape? Let not one of them get off alive. Remember the force of your arms that have reduced thirty kingdoms under my subjection. Remember your ancestors, whom the Romans, when at the height of their powers, made tributary.' Remember your liberties, which these pitiful fellows, that are much your inferiors, attempt to deprive you of. Let none escape alive. What are you doing? With these expostulations, he rushed upon the enemy, made terrible havoc among them, and not a man did he meet, but at one blow he laid either him or his horse dead upon the ground. They, therefore, in astonishment, fled from him, as a flock of sheep from a fierce lion, whom raging hunger provokes to devour whatever happens to come near him. Their arms were no manner of protection to them against the force which this valiant prince wielded his caliburn. Two kings, Sertorius of Libya and Polytetes of Bithynia, unfortunately felt its fury and had their heads cut off by it. The Britons, when they saw their king performing such wonders, took courage again. With one consent, they assaulted the Romans, kept close together in their ranks, and while they assailed the foot in one part, endeavoured to beat down and pierce through the horse in another. Notwithstanding, the Romans made a brave defence, and at the instigation of Lucius, laboured to pay back their slaughter upon the Britons. The eagerness and force that were now shown on both sides were as great as if it were the beginning of the battle. Arthur continued to do great execution with his own hand, and encouraged the Britons to maintain the fight, as Lucius Tiberius did the Romans, and made them perform many memorable exploits. He himself, in the meantime, 
was very active in going from place to place, and suffered none to escape with life that happened to come within the reach of his sword or lance. The slaughter that was now made on both sides was very dreadful, and the turns of fortune various, sometimes the Britons prevailing, sometimes the Romans. At last, while this sharp dispute continued, Morvid, consul of Gloucester, with his legion, which, as we have said before, was placed between the hills, came up with great speed upon the rear of the enemy, and to their great surprise assaulted, broke through, and dispersed them with great slaughter. This last and decisive blow proved fatal to many thousands of Romans, and even to the general Lucius himself, who was killed among the crowds by a lance, by an unknown hand. But the Britons, by long maintaining the fight, at last with great difficulty gained the victory. Chapter 12 Part of the Romans flee. The rest, of their own accord, surrender themselves as slaves. The Romans, being now, therefore, dispersed, betake themselves through fear, some to the byways and woods, some to the cities and towns, and all other places where they could be most safe, but were either killed or taken and plundered by the Britons who pursued, so that great part of them voluntarily and shamefully held forth their hands to receive their chains in order to prolong for a while a wretched life. In all which the justice of divine providence was very visible, considering how unjustly the ancestors of the Britons were formerly invaded and harassed by those of the Romans, and that these stood only in defence of that liberty which the others would have deprived them of, and refused the tribute which the others had no right to demand. Chapter 13 The bodies of the slain are decently buried, each in their respective countries. Arthur, after he had completed his victory, gave orders for separating the bodies of his nobility from those of the enemy, and preparing a pompous funeral for them, and that, when ready, they should be carried to the abbeys of their respective countries, there to be honourably buried. But Bedford the butler was, with great lamentation of the Neustrians, carried to his own city, Bajokai, which Bedford I, his great-grandfather, had built. There he was, with great solemnity, laid close by the wall, in a burying place on the south side of the city. But Tudor was carried, grievously wounded, to Camus, a town which he had himself built, where in a short time he died of his wounds, and was buried, as became a Duke of Andergavia, in a convent of hermits, which was in a wood not far from the town. Also, Holden, Duke of the Rutini, was carried to Flanders, and buried in his own city, Terivana. The other consuls and noblemen 
were conveyed to the neighbouring abbeys, according to Arthur's orders. Out of his great clemency, also, he ordered the country people to take care of the burial of the enemy, and to carry the body of Lucius to the Senate, and tell them that this was the only tribute which Britain ought to pay them. After this, he stayed in those parts till the next winter was over, and employed his time in reducing the cities of the Anabroge. But at the beginning of the following summer, as he was on his march towards Rome, and was beginning to pass the Alps, he had news brought him that his nephew Mordred, to whose care he had entrusted Britain, had, by tyrannical and treasonable practices, set the crown upon his own head, and that Queen Guanhumara, in violation of her first marriage, had wickedly married him. End of Book 10, Part 2